0: Hey, it's July 16th, 2017, and this is the Supreme Leap Forward, and I'm Stephen, here with Kevin. Hey, how's it going? And today we're going to talk about whether Hillary Clinton is more like Daenerys Targaryen or Cersei Lannister. We want you to hit <laughs> us up in the comments, let us know, send us your best Khaleesi memes. Uh, How is that even a question, though? <laughs> well, clearly which book, Cersei. Which she's, yeah, she's clearly more Cersei. I don't know. I, I thought she was a, a little more like Sansa first book. Uh, super fucking annoying, needs to go away. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> So hey, we're joined by uh Chris. Chris, we've known you for like a hundred years or so. At um, least. <laughs> Yeah, Chris, <laughs> uh, Chris Way is, too
1: long
0: Chris, Chris is a uh, is a scholar on uh, on sort of feudal law he uh, did a lot of this in in grad school and stuff and so he's going to talk to us a bit about um, sort of the origins of, of, of law and feudal society medieval society uh, talk about uh, that that and its uh, and the rise of capitalism. Uh, he wrote a paper called The Two Souls of Feudalism that I have in front of me, and we will try to to get this posted online so y'all can take a look at it as well. Uh, Chris, what's going on?
1: Not a lot, man. Uh, it's kind of weird that you have asked me to come on and talk about something that I have literally talked about with no one since leaving <laughs> grad school. I mean, it's just generally Probably the least least interesting thing I can think of to talk to other people about. I mean, for them, for me, obviously, I like it, but uh, not a lot of people care about feudalism and, well, specifically, feudal law. No, it's
0: boring. Uh, yeah, this is yeah. gonna be this is gonna be a bad episode. But, uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but
2: uh, I mean, we only discuss like the most riveting of subjects, like yeah. bankruptcy law.
0: Yeah, we we find a way, uh, but we wanted to we really wanted to do this episode because uh, we wanted it to sort of coincide with uh, with the the premiere of the new season of Game of Thrones, which is out on which is out tonight. We're sort of. Uh, nerds for it but we're like also anti-nerds for comparing it to the present day uh so (laughs) 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 that shit's the fucking worst uh so so we, we we try to avoid that at all costs but uh from from a historical perspective from uh uh you know learning about the war of roses and stuff like that when when i was younger and uh being friends with you guys certainly uh certainly helps drive my interest in that sort of thing. And so so yeah, we've got this paper in front of us. We're going to get into that and and you know, fuck, I didn't I didn't prepare Quite as much for this episode as I wanted to, because I got lost in a rabbit hole trying to find a medieval cover of "Fake Love" by Drake, and so I, <laughs> could, <laughs> so I could fit it into the to the show because that's what I do. Uh, and and I, and I spent like two and a half hours uh, trying to find it, and I and I couldn't, so I wasted wasted a lot of time that I should have spent uh, preparing. And then also. I Yeah. And and so also I'm also recording this episode from a hotel room because I'm in uh, I'm in Houston, Texas for a uh, the advanced criminal law CLE. Uh, Lawyers are required to do a certain amount of continuing legal education hours every year. And so that's what I'm here doing. And the reason I'm telling you that is because there's a uh, probably better than decent chance that my internet might drop in the middle of this conversation. So <laughs> so if, if anything like that happens, hopefully I'll be able to edit it to the degree that y'all, y'all won't be able to tell. Uh, but yeah, first, uh, before we get into the, the main discussion and sort of our sub-discussion, I, I wanted to give kind of a note that, that Kevin and I had kind of discussed uh, off-air. Um, we kind of wanted to explain why we haven't talked about uh, the the Muslim travel ban again.
2: Oh yeah, and, the travel ban, yeah.
0: And so the the reason that I haven't brought it up and and kind of posted it as you know one of our discussion topics is because um, I didn't want I don't want to read too much into uh, the uh, Supreme Court's sort of summary opinion um, lifting. Uh, the uh, injunction as to certain aspects of the ban. I don't necessarily think that that uh, portends the eventual ruling with the exception of uh, our old buddy Gorsh and, uh, and, <laughs> and a few yeah, well, others. I mean,
2: there are a few things that can be read out of what happened, right? Like, well, we did, Get Gorsuch being, uh, uh, you know, laying himself down as the absolute piece of shit that he uh, that he really is, and being being very clear that he's um, standing solid. He voted. I think I read that he he. uh, voted one hundred percent with the most conservative justices on the court, Alito and Thomas. Right. Um, uh, in his uh, opinions so far, um. But uh, and yeah, and so he laid he. Uh, Thomas and Alito and Gorsuch uh, wrote a concurring opinion with uh, the co- court's majority opinion, and they said, um, uh, the. Um, well, I guess I should back up um, and sort of explain exactly what ha- what happened. The court was actually reviewing a preliminary injunction. So the lower lower court said, well, we haven't actually fully reviewed uh, the ban, but before going through the full review process, we're going to issue uh, a preliminary injunction um, that stops it from going into effect while we go through the the long, uh, more extended process of actually reviewing it in full. Um, the so the uh, and that went up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said, uh, no, the preliminary injunction's gone, except for uh, it has to apply to, um, or it can't apply to people who uh, have a bona fide relationship with uh, people inside, of the, inside the United States. Gorsuch, Thomas, and Alito wrote separately to say, no, we should just say entirely that uh, that the preliminary injunction is lifted because uh, they're going to win on the substantive issues in court. So yeah. the three of them tipped their hand that they are in favor, that they are going to rule in favor of the, uh, you know, the substantive merits in favor of the Trump administration. Right. But the, uh, right. But the, to Stevens' point, you know, the rest of them did not say, uh, did not say that they yeah. just lifted the preliminary injunction, punted the uh, the substantive issue till down the road, till after the 90 day period has already passed and the, Uh, ban will no longer be in effect and hence the substantive issues will be moot by the time they actually reach the Supreme Court. So the liberal justices uh, basically just said, we're cowards, the courts are not (laughs) your solution. Uh, fix this yourselves.
0: Yeah, and, and it is it is sort of uh, difficult from you know a, a left leaning standpoint because you do have those ostensibly liberal justices um, refusing to to rule on on the issue uh, of of great importance, while you have the right wing justices basically saying that this is within the purview of the executive, and so it would have been nice and ideal. To have the liberal justices sort of um, act as a bulwark against that rationale, this sort of broad, overreaching executive that seems to comport with, uh, you know, the the right wing justices ideology. Um, Yeah.
2: Hashtag the resistance. (laughs)
0: but, (laughs) But of course, you know. We, we we didn't we didn't get uh, we didn't get much resistance there uh one of the things that always that, that interests me in these sort of like i call it a preliminary ruling i don't i don't really know what's what what's a better way to call it but uh where justice Gorsuch uh told us how he's going to rule on the eventual case if he gets there uh, which is the one thing he said he couldn't do in the confirmation hearings because that could be a case he could eventually hear. So, whereas the the liberal justices sort of stuck to that, you know, sort of uh, judicial canon of conduct where you don't. Give final rulings your your final opinion on matters pending or impending before the court. Uh, Judge Gorsuch decided that he didn't that that no longer applied to him. I guess <laughs> now that he is a justice and uh, and he could tell us exactly how he intends to rule on the eventual case. But yeah. you know, that's uh, that's that's our boy. Uh, <laughs> and so 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 yeah. So that's why we haven't talked about that because uh, it's sort of up in the air and nothing really got settled. To the degree that we felt uh it would have been helpful for us to to readdress it and i think we've already done like two fucking episodes on it and i'm just sick of it yeah uh,
2: <laughs> no no kidding especially since there's not any real updates
0: yeah uh but but the one thing that is that is happening uh is uh, uh donald trump's going to be impeached because uh because his <laughs> ol, old old sonny boy uh, uh uh junior junior he uh he's hooking up with with putin in secret hotels or some shit uh, I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know. What Donald the, Trump
2: himself could uh, fucking be on video having sex with Vladimir Putin while promising to uh, hand the United States over to him. And it wouldn't fucking matter. Yeah. So long as the Republican Party saw their interests in uh, not impeaching him, he's not getting impeached.
0: None of this matters. John McCain is still going to pass his agenda no matter what. Like, exactly. I, I just don't understand the, the sort of liberal breath, breathlessness over this stuff. Like... <laughs> They have no interest in in actually accomplishing anything on on behalf of of people in 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 need right now of services. No, they just
2: want to they just want to <laughs> wag their finger and point out hypocrisy as if that's gonna fucking do anything instead of building up an actual resistance on the level of policy. But it's because they don't have a fucking policy to advocate for themselves. They're just, they just- a vapid, shitty, fucking brand that everyone hates.
1: They just want to restore, they just want to restore the dignity of the office. That's really the only thing they care about. That's like the right. liberal, there's so much liberal hand-wringing right now over just the lack of decorum shown by the president. And like no outrage over what he is actually doing or what the Republicans yeah. are actually doing. It's just it's no, totally. all about it's all about uh, how he spoke improperly and he made fun of someone. Like, literally the only thing that I don't care that he's doing right now is this lack of decorum. Yeah, right. right. That's
2: the best thing about him. It's kind of endearing,
1: actually. Like, if all he was doing was he was in there being a jackass and making the office of the presidency look stupid, I would say that he was awesome. But he's actually... (laughs) really seriously hurting people. As right, well, right. You know?
0: Yeah, no, if he, if he wasn't actually, you know, causing the death of people that, that need health, access to healthcare services, then, you know, I, I would say he's done this country a great service just by, you know, ruining the mystique of, of the White House. Uh, D, yeah. D West <laughs>
1: winging, uh, un, un-Jep Bartletting the White House.
0: Yeah, no, that <laughs> that, that is a, that we are in forever in his debt for that. Uh, but
1: uh,
0: the, I think the reason that, that the resistance is so toothless is because right now there is no, there is no liberal agenda. There is no liberal uh, policy policy. Um, outlook because the only yeah. the only policy proposals that have any strength right now that have any uh, that that have any legs are things like universal health care universal education that's what people in the street are actually talking about that's what people are organizing about but the liberals are actually fundamentally opposed to those things they're fundamentally opposed yeah. to those things and so rather than come out in all-out opposition to those things, or to offer policy proposals that are uh, uh, contra- that would contravene those things, they just talk about Russia because it it's easier. It's easier than actually doing the work of politics mm-hmm. to to talk about compromise with Louise Minch or some shit. Like, it, it, <laughs> the, the, it, it's just it's just easier. And they're they're liberals. The, are, are the liberal establishment, whether it's media or, uh, or or legislators or whatever, they're just vapid. They're stupid and they're lazy. Every single one of them, uh, from 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 Rachel Maddow to you know, uh, every single one of them is just utterly useless. Useless. but uh, but anyway that was that that's that's uh, that's the state of US affairs now that we got, got that offer chest.
1: We did do the nose.
0: The nose?
1: And the hat. Mm. But she is a witch!
2: Yeah. We burn her! Burn her! Yeah. Did you dress her up like this? No. 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 no! 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 Yes! 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 Yeah. A, bit. Yeah. A, bit. a bit! A bit a bit. She has got a wart! <laughs> what makes you think she is a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt! A newt? I got better. Burn her, Eddie. Burn her! Burn her! Burn her! There are ways of telling whether she is a witch. Are What are they? They hurt! Right. Tell, right. tell me, what do you do with witches? Burn! Burn! them up! Burn. 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 burn And what do you burn apart from witches? Four witches! Wood!
1: So, why do witches burn? Because they're made of wood. Good! Oh. <laughs> So,
2: how do we tell whether she is made of wood? Build a bridge out of her. Ah, but can you not also make bridges out of stone? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah cool.
1: uh, uh, does wood sink in
2: water? No, no, no. It floats! It floats! Throw her into the pool. <laughs> what also floats in water? Braid. Apples. Uh, Very small rocks. Cider. Great gravy. Cherries. Mud. Uh, Churches. Churches. Lead. Lead. A duck. Mm. Exactly. So, logically, if she weighs the same as a duck, she's made of wood. And therefore, we should
0: use by larger scales and so Chris so tell me what's feudalism
1: feudalism well that's uh actually I think we talked we read a little bit about this in the paper that I sent you guys that uh that a lot of people... Think feudalism is a lot of different things, but you know I'll just go ahead and use a, a working definition that it's the uh, economic and social system used to structure the medieval economy and uh, medieval society, um, and that would be the period in between the collapse of the Roman Empire and the rise of capitalist nation states. So uh, feudalism is can is. Uh, a, a multitude of different things, but it's mostly can be described as a system of relations between, of personal relations between master and Lord that helped organize society along a martial basis where a a knight would pledge fealty to his Lord and uh, promise to do military service for him in exchange for a parcel of land that he would, uh, you know, be able to grow food and live off of. and. That's essentially what feudalism is, okay. but uh, there are a lot of people. There are a lot of different versions of it that grew up all throughout Europe and you know the Indian subcontinent and even in Asia that are all relatively. I mean, they're all pretty similar to that. That um, really they sort of fit into Marx's idea of the feudal economy and have always been uh, described by Marxists as such.
0: So how, how much of this comes like where where does the origins of this begin? Like how much of this comes from Rome, how much of it is pre-Rome?
1: Oh, so um it all comes out of the collapse of the Roman Empire. So you have got the this the slave economy that um Marx and Engels talk about in the Roman Empire which starts to collapse under the weight of just progress. And uh you have these, the latifundia, which are these gigantic sort of estates that were worked by slaves, start to be parcelled out to renters and uh, these renters would pay the Lord and the Lord would uh, you know pay the um the local magistrate and taxes and that's how the army was raised and maintained. And when the Roman Empire began to collapse, the latifundia were still these uh, uh, units of social cohesion, where you would still have all these peasants living on the land, and you would have the powerful lord sitting in the middle, and then you would—they would need protection, and the lord has money. The lord can hire mercenaries. The lord can hire soldiers, and you basically get little independent uh, warlords rising up out of these uh, these collections of people that are looking for. Um, you know, protection from invading barbarians and bandits and whatever else, right. and that that all happens before the Roman Empire even collapses fully. And then once the Germanic barbarians fully move in and uh, completely conquered the western half of the Roman Empire, you got to remember that the eastern half of the Roman Empire survived for another thousand years and had an entirely different system. But like, once the Germanic peoples came in and conquered and assimilated into this sort of weird. uh, Germano-Roman milieu that they created, feudalism became the dominant method of organizing society in all of its different varying aspects.
0: Right. And so it seems to me that like so much of what, uh, of, of, of what feudalism is kind of is, is structured around the concept of, of, of property, right? It's sort of, sort of based around one's relationship, both to, both to property and to, to the people that actually control the property that they live on. Would you say that's kind of accurate?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, like basically in the, the early part of the, the early medieval period, it is very much so just rule by might, right? Mm-hmm. But then once you start getting into the um, the high Middle Ages, and uh, you know the the part the part of the Middle Ages that we most recognize with all the jousting and the colorful banners and stuff like that, that's considered the high Middle Ages. You start getting um, property rights being more defined, mm-hmm. but property in the feudal system uh, is defined by like. Land that you let your subordinates, your uh, your, your vassals, mm. uh, use for you, so that they can create uh, wealth from it and be able to arm themselves and retainers to be able to do military service. So, like the the idea of property, really, as we understand it, really doesn't come into existence until later,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that's that's through. Basically,
0: law. <laughs> right, and and yeah. so the 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 way that they develop these legal relationships to sort of. I guess, buttress the idea of, of, of control, right? So so what they were doing is as they kind of wrote these laws down, they were always written down to kind of ensure that power would continue to reside in a, in a certain place, right? And, and so- Right, well,
2: well, something, you know, the, the, the creation of law rather than sort of arbitrary dictate of uh, individuals is, uh, only comes into existence, only exists uh, as a thing that has to, that has to control uh, multiple entities that would otherwise simply just uh, say, you know, if if power was simply laid in the hands of the individual that you know uh, could, could order a dictate and people could uh, would follow that order, um, if that person didn't have to abide by some higher order, then there wouldn't have to be sort of like written law.
1: Right. Right. So you have multiplicity of like different feudal arrangements that exist. That aren't codified until the 13th century, you know, or the, the, the 12th and 13th century. Right. Basically, you get the backwards application of feudal principles that might not have even existed at the time in order to stabilize a system that was very chaotic. And, uh, you know, it's just like you, the, the need for law. To sort of enshrine these relationships becomes absolutely necessary, and then you get these feudal codifications. So you've got the feudal, a feudal economy and a feudal, just basically vaguely feudal ideas existing, but that the codification comes later as a way to stabilize it. Hmm. Which I mean, I guess that that just that sort of makes. Just it's just common sense, right? The the thing right. happens, and then the uh, the the structure is built in order to continue to, to, for the thing to continue, you know? Right, right. To stabilize it, yeah, perpetuate. Yeah, it.
0: and can you kind of explain uh, the transition under feudalism from a system that relied primarily on taxation uh, evolving to a system that relies primarily on uh, on rent and tenancy?
1: Well, um, when the bourgeois economy of the towns starts to become uh you know more prominent and then you you get money and currency actually meaning something the idea that you can hire soldiers and send them to war in your place instead of actually like suiting up getting your retainers and going off to war becomes you know very uh, becomes a thing that's more desirable um so when currency becomes becomes more solid and is actually backed by these more these cohesive states. The idea that you want to charge rent for the land that people are working instead of actually just taking a portion of their grain starts to become more prominent. Um, so I mean, really, it sort of it goes and fits and starts and is it's it's hard to talk about where it happened because it happened in some places, it did not happen in other places for a really long time. But in England specifically, you you get this, England has a very developed economy, probably before anyone else England plunges headfirst into what we would consider capitalism. Currency becomes stable, and it becomes the method by which wealth is judged, instead of just cows, horses, land. And that becomes the desirable way for transactions to be done. And uh, rents replace tenancy, because it's just sort of the... uh, the natural way that things are moving there is resistance however and there are uprisings and conflicts and stuff that go that happen all throughout the the late middle ages mm-hmm. but um really it's just the, the sheer force of how much simpler and uh effective it is to do things through tenant through uh rents than you know feudal tenancy just sort of takes over plus you get you know the black plague and uh people are dying off uh in some parts of europe like two thirds of the population dies off, so you don't have these people that are bound to the land that they live on. So there, you can actually steal people away from the neighboring lord's land by offering to pay them wages and uh, giving them bits of land that they can rent from you with the wages that you're paying them. So it's just, you know, it's it it all it all comes about in England uh, in the probably comes to a head in the 13th century the 13th and 14th centuries but it happens in france simultaneously to a lesser extent and then a whole lot less on the mainland of the continent but yeah well you talked
0: about sort of uh, uh people getting uh r- sort of raising armies to do like their their personal bidding whether that's that's kings or or, or feudal lords, or, or whoever it may be. And, and, and what, th- what that makes me think of, and, and I, I don't want to get too Game of Thronesy on this, but uh, I, I wanted to ask you this as soon we as should you, get more but, Games you
2: know, of th- Thrones-y. <laughs> I,
0: I wanted to ask you, uh, Vary's riddle from, from Game of Thrones, I wanted to pitch it to you because it, it, it sort of encapsulates uh, feudalism in my mind, uh, or at least the evolution of it. Uh, and so it's, in a room sit three great men, a king, a priest, and a rich man with his gold. Between them stands a cell sword, a little man of common birth and no great mind. Each of the great ones bids him slay the other two. Do it, says the king, for I am your lawful ruler. Do it, says the priest, for I command you in the name of the gods. Do it, says the rich man, and all the gold shall be yours. So tell me, who lives and dies? So so answer that riddle for me. Feudalism, who lives and dies?
1: Um. Well... In reality, uh, everyone dies, right? Probably from plague. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> well, the,
0: the, the reason I ask is because I'm trying to get—the uh, reason I thought that this question was, was apt is because I'm trying to get a sense of whose law is the land under feudalism. Obviously, you would presume that the king's, uh, you know, uh, word is going to be the law, right? But as— as sort of economies and societies grow and expand, the king becomes more removed from, from the everyday interactions of a person's life. It's, the, the king is obviously not something that's necessarily on every feudal peasant's mind uh, and, and more so as it grows away from, from the you know, central areas where the king is actually at. And so I'm just trying to get a sense of who, who were the people listening to uh, who would they be inclined to listen to uh, more predominantly, the the word of the king that, that they're hearing via you know third parties, representatives, things like that, the word of the priest or the word of 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 the rich, the word of the merchants?
1: So I mean, like, you, depends on where you are and what time you're we're talking about. Because if you're in the Italian city states, the merchants are just as rich or richer than the uh, than the feudal lords, and they. Throw them out of Florence, Venice, uh, you know, Milan, and they create some. They they create oligarchies that are uh, not based on hereditary rights. So in those in those places, you know, the, the merchant, the merchant has the money. The merchant raises the army, and the merchant hires the pirates. And in uh, England, you have a very very strong England in the Norman states, like in in northern France, Italy. Ah, uh, you have this idea of a very strong kingship that really comes that really helps England out in the long run, and uh, England has a very strong king that the the nobles listen to, and uh, you know they kill Thomas Becket, who's a a priest who's a been a thorn the thorn in the side to the king. So they kill him. He was a bishop actually, Archbishop of Canterbury. They kill him, and the the word of the king was what held sway there. But then you have instances where the Pope puts out uh, excommunications and causes the all of the the Lords of a certain you know of like say in the Holy Roman Emperor, Empire the Lords would rise up and then be in open revolt of course they would use the uh, the Pope's excommunication as an excuse to sort of grab a little bit more power of their own but that was enough that's all you needed to, to rally everybody together was an excommunication so I mean, We like to think of medieval Europe as being the way that it was in medieval England, but it's just so diverse and it really depends on where you are and what time you're talking about.
0: I was surprised that the merchants held sway in Italy where I assumed that the Pope would have the biggest say.
1: The Pope is actually a feudal lord in Italy and is vying for influence over the peninsula with the uh, city-states there. So you've actually got a situation where you've got city-states aligning, some aligning with the pope, others aligning with the uh, the Holy Roman Emperor, who uh, is trying to buck the influence of the pope over his own nobles. And then you've got the people like Venice is aligning with uh, the Eastern Orthodox patriarch in Constantinople against the pope, never actually outright, de- no, not never actually outright defying him. Like, Often outright defying the pope, but uh, rarely ever coming to a point where there's an interdict, which is basically a wholesale excommunication of an entire city state. That happens every once in a while, but um, yeah, it's it's very much like you, people like to think of the pope as being all powerful in the Middle Ages, but no, the pope was very much a uh, a, a temporal lord, like a feudal lord and a monarch. Of a very small area that was able to have a far-reaching influence and have a lot of moral authority, but nowhere near as much military and temporal authority as say maybe the like princes and potentates of europe
0: right. so, so so people weren't people weren't listening to Jude law quite as closely as as uh, <laughs> as, as, as,
1: yes, <laughs> as the young the young pope <laughs> yeah um, the the fact that someone outright just changed religions so they could divorce their wife kind of shows that there was room to (laughs) defy the Pope, you know?
2: Right. Right. So, so there was like a real contest of power between like between the Pope and the monarchs in, in a similar to the high Sparrow trying competing with (laughs) Circe for power.
0: So, Oh, absolutely. So, so how much of, of things like the inquisition and the crusades, how much of that was, was honestly, uh church driven and how much of it was was just king driven
1: well the inquisition was very much primarily church driven and you have places like england where um they would straight up just ignore the pope whenever he's telling them to hunt hunt down uh, heretics and burn them mm-hmm. but um the inquisition is nowhere near as extensive as we think it was Mm -hmm. um so like you've got instances where you'll have one inquisitor who was one of the most famous inquisitors of the middle ages who would try something like 700 cases and only actually executed uh, you know 90 people Mm -hmm. so the inquisition didn't like to actually kill people because that was admitting that they failed Priests don't like to fail in, you know, bringing souls back to the church. So they would try everything that they possibly could to not have to kill somebody. Of course, they did torture a lot of people, you know, mm-hmm. which you know, that's not that cool. I'm not super into torture, but like, <laughs> um, they, it wasn't nearly as bloody as you would have as like pop culture would have us believe now the spanish inquisition which is after the medieval period that's a whole different thing and that is exactly what you think of when you're thinking of the medieval inquisition just going around burning witches and heretics left and right but uh the the crusades was definitely a crusade was preached by pope urban II, and that was taken up by the lords of europe Mm -hmm. and that was the first crusade and the, the the pope was Popes were always trying to get crusades uh, to go back to the Holy Land and reclaim the Holy Land because they can exert their authority by getting people to swear allegiance to them and then go on crusade. And it was, you know, you have historians arguing a lot about whether or not the crusades were genuinely pious, were motivated by genuinely pious feelings, or if they were just you know, second and third sons trying to grab out a piece of land so they could be lords as well and not just have their older brothers uh, inherit their father's <laughs> land. That actually is a primary like a primary motivation motivation for a lot of things, but you can't you really can't rule out uh, piety. Um, but right, of course, yeah. like of course. economics is probably the driving motivation
2: right for yeah, well, well, I, I imagine like anything that involves human motivations there's uh, a bit of a bit of both,
1: right. The the structure that exists of medieval society is very much built on the economic realities right. of right. the of the time, and that includes institutions like crusade. You know.
0: And my, my, my primary interest in this is sort of just someone who's interested in the law, uh, is just about like where where law comes from, how how law is created and, and for whose, for whose benefit. And so when I, when I think of feudalism, when I think of, of, of medieval times, the restaurant, I think of, uh, (laughs) (laughs) I think of, uh, of, you know, who's really in control. And, and, and as a Marxist, obviously that, that means that I think about like who's got the money, who's controlling the way that these people earn their livelihood uh, and who's going to be the most important person at the end of the day. Is it going to be the king? Is it going to be the church or is it going to be uh, the merchant class? And so that, that was that was one of the things that I, I wanted to just kind of broach. But my primary interest other than just where does law come from is uh, is criminal law, of course, because that's the law I practiced. And so I wanted to ask you, uh, so we're, what was what was crime like in during feudal times? what was how was that handled?
1: Well, the criminal law system that we think of, that we have now would be completely unrecognizable in uh in the middle ages. So you've got a so England specifically, you would have England and France. You would have a system where, You didn't have prosecutors, you didn't have like, you know, police that go around investigating crimes. You would have a, you know, someone come forward and charge their neighbor with a crime and supply the proof in order to prove that this person had done the crime. And if that person (laughs) lost their case, they could actually be punished for uh, throwing false accusations at their neighbor. So, one of the things that uh, I w- I just was reading about in the Law and the Rise of Capitalism by uh, Michael E. Tigar and Madeline R. Levy, which is something that Steven suggested to me. Um, and I would definitely suggest anyone who's interested in this sort of thing read this because it's great, it's concise, it's well written. But uh, one of the things that he-, he lays out, they lay out very uh, concisely is that the idea that you could just bring charges against someone and then produce documents. Uh, and it wouldn't really matter matter whether or not they were authentic could lead to someone's conviction and uh, uh, them being thrown in prison, um, or be killed depending on what the the crime was. Mm. Uh, actually, led to codification and uh, a very a bourgeois a bourgeois notion of authentication of documents. So contracts became super important um, as a result of the the bourgeoisie needing their uh documentation to be authentic authentic authenticated so um that's you know, super
2: interesting because I was recently i've I've been trying to make my way through some uh dense primary um uh texts on some Soviet writers legal scholars writing about like you know their theory of law and that sort of thing um and um at, there's at least a couple of them who uh, were convinced that contract law is the essence of bourgeois law
1: oh yeah yeah I mean that that's that's probably true. Um, that's not my area of study, but based on everything that I've come across and that I've read in like, you know, my years studying the subjects, that I would definitely say that's that's true. Um, you in the early medieval period, the way that the way that criminal law was, you know, prosecuted would be someone someone would say, like, I think that." Kevin sucks, and uh, he probably murdered my brother-in-law, and I'll accuse him of doing (laughs) it. And uh, if I can get someone to step forward and say, you know, um, I've heard that Kevin steals and cheats on his wife and does all sorts of bad stuff. That's like bringing a charge of public fame against you, publica fama. So that right there is enough for the uh, charges against you to be taken seriously. And uh, it doesn't take much more than that to convict somebody. But you could invoke ordeal, which you you would have some sort of like physical test that you would have to do in order to prove that you weren't guilty. And uh, this is in the early Middle Ages. Like it was like good. run a marathon or like. Oh, go no, through. no. Like you would have to snatch a stone out of a boiling pot of water. And uh, if you uh, blistered, infected, and died from the wound. You were guilty. If Naturally. you feel well, <laughs> then you weren't guilty. But like the Catholic Church hated that kind of thing. Uh, they saw it as pagan, which it was. You know, that's very pre-Christian. You, the idea that uh, you know the gods, your your patron god would smile down upon you and uh, give you the strength to be able to live through something, um, was very much a pagan idea that the Catholic Church uh, tried to get rid of from the very beginning. But. Um, you know, it it lasted. Th- what about trial by combat? Right, trial by combat was a lot less um, prevalent than people would like would like to believe because it's it's very it's very sexy, you know. Well, um, and
0: it requires money and power, which most people didn't have.
1: Right, so trial by combat was a thing that only existed in uh, the in the noble class. You know, uh, trial with the trial by combat. Say, like in France, uh, you would have to appeal. For a resolution through trial by combat, and that would have to be uh, approved by, you know, the the noble assembly for that to be able to move forward. And they didn't like that to happen. They didn't want nobles killing each other, especially in periods of war, uh, like against England, which you know the Hundred Years' War lasted longer than 100 years, and people they they needed all the warm bodies they can get. To fend off the English invaders, right? Mm. But anyway, so trial by combat was not something that they let liked to let happen. It happened probably a lot more in the early middle ages. but you know, as things progressed forward, the you know, as nation states started to coalesce, rule by law became very important. And you' get multiple different tentacles of law all developing and growing and coming together uh, in the the creation of these nation states,
0: mm. and so we, we've talked about law, and we've kind of made references to Marx a couple of times. And so the, one of the things that you raise in in uh, in your paper is uh, this concept of base and superstructure, which which I also talked about a little bit in uh, in uh, in my article on on uh, on sort of uh, Marxist jurisprudence was what whether there was a lot of whether there was any use in uh, the base and superstructure analysis. Uh, it, to me, it always seemed like it was sort of um, an incomplete thought that Marx had. Uh, but one of the things that there's not a lot of agreement uh, on on Marxist legal scholars, Marxist jurists, is where the law resides in the base and superstructure analysis. Do you have any kind of sense of, of of where where law comes from and how it's informed?
1: Well, I mean, I would say, I mean, like the the whole premise of my paper. Is that that the economic base of feudal society was in existence before law, the the law that governed it came into place? And that was sort of an argument against these multiple strands of scholarship saying that feudalism didn't actually even exist because there are too many different ways to look at feudalism, and there's too many different things that too many different ways of. Uh, Of enacting these relationships, so we can't actually say that feudalism exists. And what I was saying was like, yes, feudalism existed as this very loosely defined system of personal relationships, of military service and landholding, and that that all all the necessity for a a codified system that would stabilize these this very chaotic relationship was brought forth by the economic reality, economic. the economic reality of these relationships. So where law, to me, exists within the base and superstructure is very much so in the superstructure. Um, Law is absolutely, the law absolutely comes from the need to stabilize society and to perpetuate the economic system that held sway at the time. And of course, it's going to feed back into the base and alter the base you know you can alter the way the way that wealth is extracted by applying laws to the society but ultimately what's best i mean what is what is decided what is thought to be best is going to be whatever stabilizes and perpetuates the uh accumulation of wealth
0: right and so the the, right, the, yeah. the the two main sources that i had that i had relied on uh for the basin for my basin superstructure analysis uh one is uh, by a marxist criminologist named mark cowling and uh and another by uh raymond bilioti who was a uh, who was a uh, an attorney and and marxist historian uh and they both talked to, they both said that that uh, the 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 law is part of the superstructure uh that, that marx had written that that uh, society's economic structure is what drives the legal and political superstructure uh, marx seemed yeah. to indicate specifically that law was part of the superstructure however uh and this is all sort of dry and only interesting to me uh but <laughs> <laughs> a, a, another scholar g.a cohen wrote uh, a response to a another marxist criminologist named Hugh Collins. Uh, sp- just specifically on the issue of base and superstructure, and what he said is that um, proponents of natural law, like himself, have suggested that that law is actually part of the economic base, as the mode of production itself adheres to certain laws of ownership. So the the legal schema is not necessarily part of the superstructure because it itself does the informing of the, of of politics. And if you have that sense of natural law, if, if the relation of people uh, to one another, the relation between um, the, the mode of production is necessarily informed by our legal relationships, uh, because so much of it is based on ownership, uh, is based on, on access and ownership of property. And so I just thought it was interesting. Uh, I don't think uh, Marx necessarily did enough to, to make this a super coherent uh, thing for us to to use in our analysis uh much like the lumpen proletariat i think is sort of a uh, incomplete um incomplete project but it but it was interesting i I'm, I'm definitely interested in sort of uh sort of expanding it um but uh the other thing i wanted to talk to you about is uh so w- we went over the ordeals and we talked about uh th- these different kinds of punishments what what made them stop doing that?
1: Um, well, you know, the way they taught it to us in school was that the uh, the church was uh, against the justice being meted out by uh, these temporal rulers, and they wanted a more cohesive form of justice. And the only really codified law that existed in the early Middle Ages was church law, you know, the uh, the 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 canon law that was sort of uh, being loosely put together at the time and it was carried over from the Roman Empire. So the bishops would be the most powerful people in 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 certain areas. And bishops would want a uniform code of uh of you know of justice that would um be you know strictly adhered to and that the idea that you would have uh people carrying out you know vendettas and ordeals in order to prove something um just sort of undermined the authority of the church and the the uh, the rulers that the church backed in trying to stabilize the you know the society of western europe and of course paganism you know right. they saw these things as pagan
0: and so were, were were the the sort of church representatives were those our early judges like who what was the what was the judicial body that that once once ordeals were were, were banished how were how were new laws enforced and administered
1: um manorial courts what the would be that? one that would be like the the Lord the Lord would sit in judgment over <laughs> his people in his uh that lived in his domain you know um the the cases would be brought Before the Lord, the Lord would judge them. Um, In places like where there was, uh, the, the bishops would be literal feudal lords over these areas. They would have ecclesiastical courts and ecclesiastical so, so this would be law. like literally
2: anybody with any complaint would come before the the lord uh, with you know some issue that's happened to them or their family or something like that or is this confined more to like the aristocracy
1: um no it, pretty much anyone would if you had a complaint if you're a peasant and you had a complaint against your neighbor you could bring it before your lord and your lord would pass judgment on it wow. um, in england you get a system of circuit courts uh, in, in an attempt to- um, Circuit
2: court sounds familiar.
1: Right, yeah. right. In an attempt to sort of uh, stabilize and uh, make law uniform across the board, you get traveling judges who are, who are lawyers appointed by the king to uh, deal out justice. And they would travel all around the kingdom uh, in a circuit and rule on judgments in the name of the king, sort of trying to take law out of the hands of uh, these individual nobles, and also nobles could bring up cases against one another in these circuit courts.
0: Right, and and that's uh, and that's definitely where where we got sort of our early beginnings of uh, of our judiciary. Uh, the Supreme Court initially was, of course, a traveling court. Uh, the circuit courts that 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 followed were were. That they were circuit courts, they travel the circuit. Now the judges just sit in one place and never move. Uh, but the, <laughs> <laughs> but but the but the judge who is the judges who have taken retirement status still sort of adhere to this uh, this circuit process. J- retirement status judges uh you know, one minute are, are are presiding over a case in uh in, in South Texas and the next minute they're presiding over a case in Texarkana. And so uh the it's interesting that, that sort of that, that sort of principle in, in even a small way uh still still stands. It's still it's still useful.
1: No, for anyone that doesn't it, live in Texas, that the distance between South Texas and Texarkana is like, <laughs> you know, like North Carolina to Maine, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it's like half the country. It's, it's pretty. But sad. I mean,
2: that—that's that, a. I mean, this, this is one of the, uh, like one of the one of the reasons that uh, the law is so bizarre and hard to follow, and nothing makes sense, and you need these, spe- you know, specially trained experts uh, with law degrees to explain to you what the hell the courts are talking about. Is because they're they're parsing these, you know, they're trying to count the number of fucking angels on the head of a pin, uh, to parse the <laughs> difference uh, between these Byzantine rules and these bizarre ancient structures that are that are, that are that were developed long before anybody in contemporary society uh, was drawing anything up. Yet, for some reason. Um, there's a a, a serious. There is a school of um, um, uh, legal theory that is holds sway over uh, a, a significant, well, a majority of the Supreme Court at this point, but a, a significant portion of the population um, that think that uh, all rules must adhere to the, yeah, you know, or the way that we conduct our society today must adhere to these rules
1: drawn up by fucking. You know, kings, law. Right. Yeah, I mean and that sort of lends uh, credence to the whole uh, idea that law is part of the superstructure. Is that you've got this you know vast number of conflicting rulings on similar cases that exist, and there has to be some sort of system to decide which ones you're going to uh, you know hearken back to in order to provide the you know the the code that you will carry forward because the the law that existed in the middle ages common law in england specifically which is what you know we use here in the united states was total fucking chaos it was you know you know the idea of precedent is is what mm-hmm. drives common law so if you could get away with something back then you can make, make a case for getting away with it now right, you know? right, and which is right exactly total insanity but, you know, yeah, as,
2: no, as a... it's it's total insanity, especially it's uh, you know, I, I studied a bit of environmental law in school. I don't you know do anything with that uh, now, but <laughs> uh, but I studied a bit of it and the entirety of all of this stuff, it really p- puts things into stark contrast because environment issues that confront. Environmental issues that confront society today are new. These are novel problems. These are novel issues, and when people are, are, uh, plaintiffs are bringing cases to try to like argue that common law protects this and doesn't protect that. You end up with these bizarre rulings that go all over the place because um, you can convince a conservative justice. Um, that to rule in your favor, if if you can fit it into these old uh, paradigms, these old narratives about you know what is protected and what's not protected, and these categories, these things that these conservative justices are uh, obsessed with are just, it's so weird, it's so ill-suited to the modern world, to the realities of the modern society that we live in and the problems that we're confronted with. Yet they, they, they hold these up like the ironclad rule of of reason and nature itself.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and this sort of like really kind of hits at the heart of, of one of our major critiques kind of throughout the show is sort of against originalism against mm-hmm. uh, that, that originalist um, uh, interpretation of the constitution. And so I'll, I'll post this along with uh, within the show notes. Uh, but Michael Tigar, who who wrote the book that Chris mentioned earlier, law and the rise of capitalism, he wrote a, a law journal article in July, 2015 for the uh, Akron law journal. And it's t- Titled uh, the original understanding and the Con- original understanding and the Constitution, and it sort of talks about uh, why originalism is sort of a bankrupt. Uh, mode of interpretation, not just via the constitution, but via all law in general. And uh, like I said, I'll post this in with the show notes, but I wanted to read his, uh, his concluding passage because uh, it's awesome. And he's, he's clearly uh, uh, would would probably like this show and we need to get him on. (laughs) He said, uh, he said, and I know this, Keep on smoking that originalist weed and it'll stunt your intellectual growth and make you a toady and not an advocate. (laughs) There are voices out there asking for justice. It will not do you any good to stand on your balcony and say, let them eat original pie. To be a lawyer means (laughs) to accept the challenge of figuring out what the Constitution means. You will soon take an oath to that effect. And because you were a lawyer, you will have to take responsibility for whatever you decide the Constitution stands for. Which side will you be on which century will you be in? And so uh, I, thought, <laughs> I thought that was great. Uh, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's clearly part of the dirtbag left now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he'll be great. Uh, but at any rate, uh, so yeah. So Chris, I really want to thank you for coming on, having this conversation with us. Uh, I wait, hope- wait, 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 hold oh, on. Go ahead.
2: Where does the War of Roses enter into it? And give draw me the parallels <laughs> for Game of Thrones.
1: Where, I mean, where does the War of Roses enter into law? I mean, enter into medieval history. What, what was the law of the rose?
0: Which one was a uh, Baratheon? Okay, <laughs>
1: so like the War of the Roses was the war between the House of Lancaster and the House of York that it eventually led to the Tudor dynasty, which is the joining of these two houses. And the, that's actually really important for law because you have Henry VIII is the going to be the uh, the most famous Tudor. I don't know, I guess Elizabeth's pretty famous as well. But anyway, Henry VIII is going to absolutely kick feudalism in the balls and (laughs) drag the bourgeoisie up in order to prop him up, which makes England the most wealthy and powerful uh, state in early modern Europe because of their full-fledged embracing of the bourgeoisie as a rising class, which helps sort of give... Henry, his absolute power, and thumb his nose at the nobles, and uh, strip them of their power mm-hmm. and eventually create this this state, this absolute monarchy with the bourgeoisie at the direct, uh, directly underneath the king and the sort of meritocracy that comes up uh, in its wake. And then they have to destroy this monster that they created with, you know Oliver Cromwell and, you know, the English Civil War and eventually sort of settle into this constitutional monarchy that we recognize now. Mm. Well, yeah, and, I, uh, <laughs> that's super important for law. But as far as the War of the Roses is concerned, you know, it's a it's a loosely loosely based uh, Game of Thrones is loosely based on the War of the Roses.
0: <laughs> yeah. So uh, toward uh, toward the end of, of your of your piece, you you wrote that uh, private landholding uh, ceased to be a trapping of power. And itself becomes the nature of power, and uh, I, I thought that was interesting because um, that that really sort of identifies the uh, the origin of, of landowning as the predicate for rights under the United States Constitution. Because it, it, and initially that was that was who it applied to, uh, that sort of land ownership being um the the starting point for your ability to exercise your rights and understanding oh yeah you know how it's it's feudal origins i guess
1: right yeah absolutely it was the extension of the ability uh, the st- extension of the ability to own land to like the mass of commoners in this period that really sort of elevates the bourgeoisie to the new ruling class of england and then you know the world eventually but and so, yeah, absolutely.
0: And so, date date. Can you date that uh, that period in which uh, there was that transition to uh, private ownership of land rather than like sort of uh, uh, f- feudal lord ownership and then uh, agrarian tilling by the common?
1: Um, I mean, really, it's sort of a slow process that happens in the late medieval period. But I would say that in England, it f- fully goes into into play in the sixteenth century uh, with the Tudor dynasty and the successive, uh, reforms and remakings of the state that existed. And then, you know, I mean, you look at the, the vestiges of feudal land ownership in, uh, in France didn't go away completely until 1789. Mm -hmm. And then in Russia and Poland, until you know the late 19th century or the right. mid 19th century actually the mid 19th century so i mean really you've got uh feudal relations of power existing here and there all over europe for you know centuries after it goes away in england
0: Right, yeah, uh, it's just sort of interesting the way uh, the way our, our constitution sort of bears the uh, the lowly stamp of its origin. Um, right, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but I mean
1: I th- I think that it's something that we we often do as leftists is throw the baby out with the bathwater and refuse to acknowledge yeah. uh, the bourgeois revolutions in all of their short with all of their shortcomings as being progressive. We look at um, the the American revolution and think, oh yeah, those were all a bunch of slaveholders. Yeah, that's true. A bunch of them were slaveholders. Not all of them were slaveholders, but the founding fathers moved the epoch, the bourgeois epoch forward and brought about ideas like, like suffrage, universal suffrage and uh, ideas that could have never existed under feudalism. I mean, you had to have the desacralization of monarchy in order to bring forward ideas that would eventually they could eventually result in the wholesale liberation of humanity. Um, that couldn't have happened happened without reactionaries like, you know, Martin, uh, Martin Luther and yeah. John Calvin mm-hmm. and <laughs> people that we consider reactionaries, but are revolutionaries at the time, or people like Oliver Cromwell, who was a right bastard obviously, but you know, was <laughs> was a driving force in pushing society forward. So yeah, I mean like, sure, Thomas Jefferson was a slaveholder. Thomas Jefferson actually also laid the foundation for the abolition of slavery, you know? Right
0: yeah i don't don't really care too much about the founders except for uh thomas Paine, who is unimpeachable in my mind but
1: uh (laughs) what is this what is this call uh, for nuance uh, and complexity but uh, (laughs) i love i love hitting uh you know strict constitutionalists over the head with uh, thomas Paine because they love to defend the slaveholders saying Mm. well you know you just don't understand because that's the way things were at the time i'm like Thomas Paine, motherfucker, read yeah. what he wrote
0: about slavery. <laughs> well, you know? and even Madison to a degree uh, was – Oh, yeah. Was, you know, Adams
1: as well as abolitionist. Yeah,
0: and and Madison particularly was, was super anti-originalist intent. Like he, he said it, when, when he was president, he was like, even now the Constitution has a different meaning – than it was when I fucking wrote it myself. So, <laughs> yeah. So, about we
2: all Pramer's got her. original intent. Yeah.
1: I, I, hear that this Alexander Hamilton guy was really hip and cool though. You oh,
0: know? yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I heard he I've rapped. Been, I heard, I heard. Yeah. He, that's he was, true. He was, uh, he was,
1: <laughs> he was real cool. A very, uh, a very likable figure, you know, a, uh, very just, a, cool. just a real hip guy. Very, yeah, I mean, very
0: I, normal. <laughs> I, I hear, uh, I hear he's real popular with, uh, with, with Mike Pence and, and the rest of the ghouls. Uh, yeah, he <laughs> wrote a musical, right? Yeah, he did write he did, a musical. Uh, that, that was a thing that he did that was not done by weirdos later on in life. Uh,
1: <laughs> he invented hip hop. That's pretty cool. I always thought it was like a, you know, you know, black urban thing, but it turns out it was a, a white guy. Yeah. You know. <laughs>
0: Yeah, there's there's your Western there's your Western showmanism, uh, Matt oh, yeah. Matt Forney and Gavin McInnes rejoice. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so, so yeah, Chris, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Uh, had a great time. Hope uh, hope everybody else uh, enjoys this as much as we did putting it together. Uh, thanks
1: for giving me a chance to talk about something that like literally no one ever lets me talk about like it's <laughs> it's probably been since grad school that, that I actually sat down and have a conversation had a conversation about this sort of thing yeah well there's you
2: and maybe like four other people on the planet who care about <laughs> uh, about medieval
1: history well
0: that, that oh I know just like that don't just live yeah. at Rin fairs
1: oh right well, those <laughs> people don't actually care about medieval history those you know, yeah. I mean, uh, as much as I love a Ren Fair, you know, it, it's yeah. they don't care about the the historicity of it. You know, it's right. like
2: fantasy and dress up. They yeah. just
0: want to LARP.
1: Right. <laughs> I mean, De- I I see more Deadpool and Thor's than I do like actual <laughs> period costume.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. But anyway, thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Y'all take it easy. All right. Yeah, thanks,
1: Chris. We'll see ya. Absolutely. Man. Thanks.